Hey everybody, this is Adam from the Biff Instructor Team, and today I'm here with Brendan, and we're continuing our conversation that we had from last month on behavioral finance. We just found uh, so much more interesting data and studies since our last conversation, and we thought we'd share it with you. Uh, Brendan, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm excited about this. I think this is a very interesting topic. Um... And we're we're now seeing data being produced for, you know, this this amazing experiment that we've all been a part of uh, over the last year and a half, and and we're getting to see, you know, what people's thoughts are uh, on on this crisis um, versus what people were feeling at the time in 2008, uh, and and I think that it, it's it's interesting to me how similar they actually ended up being, despite how different the the uh, reason for the the crisis was. Yeah, and at the time, so just looking back really quick and jumping right in. So in 2008, was behavioral finance top of mind for most people in the industry? Um, you know, it's interesting. No, absolutely not. Was not top of mind, but it was starting to become a thing. Like people were starting to become interested in it. Uh, I would say it was right around 2008 um, and, and nothing to do, just coincidentally, nothing to do with, with the uh, Great Recession or the financial crisis, um, where I started really focusing on uh, just, just out of interest behavioral finance, not necessarily from a practice standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and so, which was good because it, it certainly armed me uh, with, some, with some defenses uh, for what we were all about to go through. Um, and so, so now, and it, it, it really, it, it took many years after that. I mean, I would say from a practice standpoint, behavioral finance has really just been a thing for the last year and a half, like where, where a lot of people are talking about it. There was a few firms that would do like these experiments that would, you know, make you feel like, wow, this stuff is interesting. And then that would be it. Like people would leave the room and no one would think about it again. Um, but uh, it, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely got a lot of steam going down the tracks right now. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Uh, it seems like everywhere you look on the articles that are out there, some of the thought leaders, uh, it's it's just in the discussion. And I think for the better, this is, I think it's challenging a lot of people to to think about, about the interactions, about uh, maybe biases that they see in their clients. And I think what we discussed last time, though, the biases that they have in themselves that might be be contributing to to the overall mix. So uh, right. And, and not all of us are going to be skeptical like Mike Long, who thinks that, you know, behavioral finance's purpose is to manipulate the outcome of something. <laughs> so we have to get him on one of these so we can actually play that out a little bit. But I don't know as though we're going to be changing his mind. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. At this point, um, it might still be voodoo. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there is data there. I mean, and and there's, you know, what's funny, and I think you and I dialogued about this a bit, is that. Uh, this stuff, my undergrad was in psychology, and a lot of the stuff that you see as the biases that are on that list uh, of cognitive biases and emotional biases too, a lot of that stuff is, is just tried and true cognitive psychology stuff, you know, primacy and recency and availability, like that stuff is, has been in, in that discussion for a while. And, yeah. um, you know, the psychologists that, that study that stuff or interact with people, I think they, they really make an effort to practice it. So, so, so let me, let me ask you a question, given that yeah. this is, now this is certainly not my background. My background is finance. I'm just got a, a, an interest and a general curiosity about behavioral issues. Um, but would you say 
that the way that things are pre presented to people, either in a social or traditional media setting, that these tools are being used to, to garner clicks and eyes. Yeah. Okay. And I do you think that's helpful or hurtful? Hurtful. Yeah, I agree with that. And, yeah. and so, or at least it seems like just because everyone seems so angry all of a sudden, uh, and, and it doesn't seem like that's going to change anytime soon. But, you know, you do, when, and especially when I look at, and we'll get to this in a few minutes, the the triggers, not the triggers, the, the biases that are seen most predominantly by generation, um, the millennials who are, who are, who have been more in their formative years as this shift in, at least the shift that I, I perceive in, in, uh, the presentation of information, both in, uh, uh social and traditional media settings kind of just like play into these by, and, and, and so I, when I saw this list, I wasn't necessarily that surprised, um, and, and and so I, I agree. I think I think that it's being leveraged to, uh, you know, generate something that marketing can't get to, right? So they're yeah. they're they're hitting your base psychological issues without a doubt. I, in fact, I remember taking a class in social psychology in my undergrad, and at the time, the newspaper was still the hub for all this stuff. You yeah, know, it was top. You know, what was the headline? And uh, a lot of the studies that were conducted around what newspapers were delivering uh, to their, their readers suggested that in order for it to be newsworthy, it had to be negative. It had to have some sort of, uh, elicit some sort of emotional response from the people. Like that's, that was the, the headlines that really sunk in and the topics that really got people's attention. So I think that this stuff has been implemented for a while but now with yeah you look at the, the the sensationalized headlines of like the tabloids per se right yeah. uh -huh. um and, but you, you didn't really see it as much in what, what people would consider traditional news yeah outlets um okay. okay interesting yeah but let's 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 pick up with that millennial piece so, uh, well yeah so let's start what we we're going to take a look here at um the different the different generations and the biases that are most prevalent as seen by their financial advisors. So again, there could be some bias in the data that we're talking about here. But this is, you know, using that that uh, opinion of the financial advisor that's dealing with them on these emotional issues. I think we'll hold that as the constant, um, and we'll be able to use you know and say that the data is at least good from from that study standpoint. So we have the silent generation, who are seventy three plus. Uh, which my father fits squarely and I wouldn't necessarily consider him that silent. Um, so, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where the silent generation uh, name came from. Uh, we've got the baby boomers who are aged 54 uh, to 72 at the time of the study. Um, we've got generation X, which I think you and I both yep. fit squarely in, which is ages 38 and 53 at the time of the study. Uh, and, and the study was conducted at the end of 2019. Uh, and then we have the millennials who are uh, younger than 38. Uh, Generation Z is is captured sporadically throughout this stuff, but it's not it's not predominantly what the uh, the focus of the study was. Mm -hmm. And you see a big difference in the types of things that impact the financial decisions of these people. And I think it it's it's uh, you got to say certainly psychology changes over time. Um, what you base your information on and what you base your decisions on uh, will change as you go through different experiences in life. And the older you get, you tend to have more experiences to kind of lean on. And so you're less susceptible to some of the things that we were just talking about. So when we look at the silent generation, 
the five most predominant biases uh, in them are the uh, familiarity and home bias, loss aversion, right? I don't want to lose money. I just, I, I, I've done, I've got what I've got at this point. I want to ride it out until, you know, my ripe old age of 120 uh, and just don't lose it for me. Uh, this one, clearly my father has, because uh, I, I try to play this all the time. Selective memory. Uh, I'm going to remember the things that are convenient to my argument and pretend that the things that aren't convenient to my argument did not exist. Uh, and then the last two, and, and the last one is specifically is very interesting to me uh, for this, because we only see it in one other generation in the top five. So uh, the next one is anchoring, um, where it, it involves the, uh, the tendency for people to uh, focus on a very specific reference point. They anchor their, their opinion based on that. And with, with investments, we will typically see it as the price that they paid for something. Um, and, and so if you, even if you paid it 30 years ago, it's still, that's the, that's what you think your, your gain loss position uh, remains. Uh, and then the last one is framing. Uh, and, and framing is, um, you know, I think part of what we were just talking about, how, how things are presented, how information is presented and, and yeah. uh, you know, whether or not that impacts your decision. So framing is seen. I was very surprised to see this uh, for people 73 and older. Now with, with framing, though, if we could pause there a moment. So <clears throat> my instinct is I, I immediately go to the negative frame, right? How, how could things be portrayed? Maybe not as they quite are. But in some of the reading that we had leading up to this, it's clear that framing done well and, and strategically can actually be helpful on, on the behavioral side, right? Fla framing. It, 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 it goes to Mike's point that, you know, all we're doing is, is uh, creating, you know, a, a narrative that feels comfortable that makes people do things. Right. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's, um, you know, I would say that, that it's a valid point, right? So, so I would say that during periods of extraordinary stress, Framing is important to protect people from doing things that are going to be absolutely harmful to their financial life, right? And so you do have to, I think, so it's a very valid point, Adam. So, so you, you do really have to try to, to spin the away from what we're currently seeing and get back to that, like what the long-term plan is and whether or not this impacts that. And if it does, how do we make changes? If it doesn't, how do we pretend we don't see it so that we can just continue on the path we're on? So yeah, you're right. So my skepticism, I was looking at framing just from the from the, the worst possible <laughs> viewpoint. Uh, all right, then we move to baby boomers. Uh, and they're five, they, they share uh, a couple with the silent generation. So that the top bias scene is uh, anchoring. Uh, the second is loss aversion, which is the exact same. Uh, the, it was the second for silent generation as well. Then we move into another one, which is overconfidence. So talk to me a little bit about what things kind of lend to overconfidence. Uh, I would say, <laughs> I mean, this, this kind of pulls in something I've seen recently, but <clears throat> I, knowing that, that I have, I can pick the winners, right? right. I, I can, I, I have, I've <clears throat> heard enough on the networks I read enough in my 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 stuff. I've done my research. I can now go off it, and and I'm very confident that I'm going to continue strong round of winners. Yeah, and 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 there's all kinds of things. So, 
and casinos, casinos especially, and I, I, I never like to compare gambling to uh, investing, but you know, from a psychological standpoint, we, we tend to have a lot of overlap between the two. Uh, the more involved you are, um, the more confidence you, you tend to have, be it that your control is impactful beneficially to you or not, the more information you have, the more familiar you are with the task. Uh, if you did it well the last time, you think it's because of your skill and not because of just, you know, fortune shined on you that day. Uh, and so all of these things kind of lend into uh, overconfidence. And I'm surprised because overconfidence, I would have said, would be something that I would see predominantly. I really think that that's got to be one of the strongest bias in, in, in the people that I've seen. Um, and it's the only place that it shows up in the study, which was shocking to me. Yeah. Right? So I would, I would really expect that to be much more prevalent. Um, the next thing is, uh, confirmation bias, you know, and confirmation bias is something else. Now this is in, in everything downstream from here, everyone else has confirmation bias. Uh, and this is where, well, I'm going to go find the argument or the data that supports my argument. I'm going to disregard all other data, right. But the stuff that supports me and we all do this, right. So if you like in the, the best place where you see this manifest is on Amazon, Yeah. Right? if you really want something you're going to disregard all the one-star reviews. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't really apply to me, right? So you just go and you go find the ones that agree to you making this purchase. If you're somewhat like sketchy, like if you're on eBay and you're like, eh, I don't know, you, you, you're worried about the person that you're dealing with, your counterparty risk, you go and read all the one-star reviews to see who we screwed in the past, right? And, and, and you try to say, well, is this relevant to me or not? That's a great uh, and, and so, Yeah, confirmation bias is definitely a strong one. Uh, and then the last one is mental accounting. Um, in mental accounting, you know, so so what what is your opinion uh, of 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 mental accounting as as a good thing or because just because these biases are here doesn't necessarily mean they're all bad. I don't. I've always thought of this one as you know my instinct is yeah it would be good if that was documented somewhere but if if that's how that if that's how you're navigating your life yeah we have this this money set aside we can we can do this right it's right. the the money jar mental money jar is what they'll, they'll call it at times. Right. I don't, yeah. I don't know that it's good or bad. I think that like anything, if it's, if it's too much, then you could be in some cash flow stuff or potentially debt related stuff. Yeah. Well, I can put this on the card. We'll be, able, we'll be able to get it, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, what's, if what's it's too concrete. Opinion? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, it's, I always find it interesting that there's, there's, I've read a, a, a number of things that say, well, you know, mental accounting is bad, but multi-time horizon approach is good. Well, it's, to me, it's kind of doing the exact same huh. thing, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so I think if you've done, you know, correctly where you're not going to, uh, you know, just because you can now and if things change in life doesn't mean that you should moving forward, you know, as long as you have the ability to kind of make those decisions that, okay, the world has changed. I have to change what I'm considering these things. And I think that it, it's okay. Um, and so that that's the last of the bias. So you know, all of these, I would say that these would be things that I would, again, aside from the overconfidence, just not showing up more, um, uh, you know, the, 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 both of these are kind of what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. And we move into our generation. So do you want to, I think you might have it in front of you, but. No, I don't. I don't. Okay. So fine. So what, what do you think that the, the, let's talk about you and I specifically, since we are, we are the proxies for generation X. What, what are some of the Boy. biases that you think Oh, fall into. I I feel like loss aversion. Like I know you. I think you mentioned that that that's carried out through the rest of these. But 
but I could I could see that. Um, Monster version is not. It's not. No. Wow. Well, yeah, because just like we're young, we've got all this time to make this stuff up. So it's it's not really a loss until I sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's surprising. Yep. How about um, uh, recency bias? That's number one. All right. That's number one. So we are most susceptible to things that are going well, like Eeyore, right? If it's if it's bad, it's always going to be bad. <laughs> you know, if it's good, it's always going to be good. We we yes, that's that's number one. Yeah. Um, anchoring. Nope. No. Huh. Yeah. No, so That's and, and, to me. yeah, there's there's a couple that are interesting. So so uh, the next one is mental accounting. Okay, right, and I do yeah. that, I, and and I, I do that by practice. I do it with my clients, and, and yeah. again, I I just call it multi horizon. You know, we have different things set aside for 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 different reasons, and and uh, again with the with the uh, concession that if things change, we 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 alter, right? Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, just think about that just from from a a, a plan, right? If if you're it's very reasonable to say, all right, well, this, this account, let's establish this. And this could be a place where we save for future long-term care costs, right? This, this is what this does, or medical costs. Let's, let's even be more broad. Let's Both of those sound very exciting. I was thinking like the boat. Of the boat. <laughs> that too. No, but that's, there's, right. it's one and the same. It's just a separate fund that, that is earmarked. Um, I've seen some people that have had I mean, in their in their actual checking account, just sub a lot of sub accounts. Yeah, and they name are, them. Yeah, that are like you know, this is this is my my uh, my piggy bank account. Right. Like I could just I could just crack this open and use it if I want to buy something. This is my account for you know the the motorcycle, you know, and so on and so forth. But and, and what's funny is is so I work at Jenny Montgomery Scott now, and and I worked at Merrill Lynch prior to that. Uh, and each of those firms, or both of those firms, I guess I should say, would allow clients on their website to go in and, and nickname their accounts. And, and huh. all of a sudden, you'd start seeing like, oh, and they didn't know that I could see it. Right? So they nicknamed <laughs> the accounts these like, was like, what the hell does this mean? And, and then I get to understand what they're really thinking. Yeah, right? Cause that's not what they're saying in the meeting. You know, and then all of a sudden, I get to have the, the conversations. Well, you know, I think we need to review some of these things. Explain to me what uh you know the 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 slush fund is and you know slush fund shouldn't have half a million dollars in it <laughs> uh all right then we go to confirmation bias is the next mm -hmm. one which i i definitely fall into that first I, I try again i try to be very objective when it comes to uh what i deal with with clients but for, for me personally like those those amazon and ebay references are just honestly yes. things that i i do right yeah. that's and yeah. I, i'm I'll, sure that i'm not alone in that it's funny. Uh, I, I'm just, I've been thinking about, about how I engage with that. And I never brought in that key piece of, do I, is this something that's really a want uh, or am I just buying something for, for someone? Because I'll, I'll go down to that summary and I'll look for the balance of good reviews to, to not good right. reviews. But then inevitably when I start scrolling through, I think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm validating that I actually want this or I don't with, with how I engage with those those reviews right no, there's whether a one, or not everyone else there's one yeah. oh you're just you're just you know you're just you know a crotchety crotchety person and you know you, you just get joy out of out of these one star reviews and there's a five star and it's you know oh that's fantastic all right this is yeah. something that i want to buy yeah and, and it's, it's heard some of it it's i think part of it's heard mentality too we absolutely numbers and, and yeah uh, yeah so i i think that that's that's definitely something that i am susceptible to and then 
this one also is interesting to me. Uh, uh, and I, I guess I, I was expecting this to show up more often as well, because it's a very powerful one. Uh, it's regret aversion. Ah. People suffer from making mistakes and, and they, it's the disposition effect, you know, we feel less, less benefit from things that go well than, than we, we feel pain from things that don't go well, right? That classic, yeah. like, I'll, I'll feel more pain from losing $10 than finding 20. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so it's, it's a, uh, I was expecting that to show up more, but it's so, so it's a, it's a, you know, last on the list for, for our generation. It's the only place it shows up. And I guess I, you get old enough. You're like, I don't care anymore. Right. You know, <laughs> to hell with it. And, Whatever. And, and that's, that could be right. But I was, it, it, it's not in millennials and maybe it's because millennials just don't ever think they make mistakes. Uh, where, where do you think that comes from? I mean, could we, could we speculate that that comes from 08 from people maybe not doing the right thing there, like buying no, back. I mean, I, but, well, so, so I think if we take a step further back from that, I, I, I think it's a, I just like from a, from just a base non-money psychological standpoint, people don't like making mistakes. Yeah. Like yeah. people, people feel shame for, for the mistakes that they've made. And, and sometimes, you know, you talk to people and, and, you know, they talk about these, these nonsensical insignificant issues that occurred a decade ago. And they still like, you can tell it's like a, a like a fresh wound still. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so I think I, I that's why I'm very surprised because it tends to be a very powerful one. Um, and it's just not, you know, it, it's just not, it just didn't make this list. All right. Then we move to the millennials and this one, I guess they, they all, they are all, I, one of the differences I think with the other three generations is the biases aren't anywhere near as interconnected as the ones. So there's a significant concentration in types of bias in millennials that you just don't see anywhere else. So the first one is framing. Mm -hmm. The second one is hurting. H-E-R-D, not H-U-R-T, right? So hurting, moving, moving together in, in, in the corral. Yeah. The third one is confirmation bias. Uh -huh. The fourth one is self-control. And then the fifth one is availability bias. And, and uh, the best way that I can explain availability bias is that it's, it's trading the market you want versus the market you have, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, correct me if, if that's a, if that's yeah. a, yeah, yeah. That's so what about uh, self-control? How would you how would you define self-control? Is it just is as it sounds? Yeah, I, I would say that that it's it's you know uh, main self-control um, from my perspective is the discipline to stick to the plan. Yeah, but, but in both good and bad times, right? So we listen. Oh, well, we made more this year than we thought we were going to do. So that means if I buy you know the Maserati, I can still be you know on the exact number we said we were going to do. You know, it's not not really within the plan, but you know, let's go ahead and do it. Yeah. So I think self-control is, is that maintaining that discipline. So, but that could, and that could be the, the YOLO bias, right? Like, yeah. YOLO. Uh, what else? Uh, FOMO. FOMO. Uh, yeah. All, all of that stuff. I did. Yeah. YOLO, YOLO and FOMO were things that I heard for several months, if not quarters before I actually knew what it was. Like, I think that's the, I feel old when I read texts of you must be from people Gen younger X. than me. What's that? You must be from Gen X. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And it's just like, I think that's... Same, um, same here. Yeah. I, I've I just, heard of FOMO because my, 
my wife would bring that up with, you know, from her therapeutic space, she'd be like, there's, you know, and she'll often say about herself, like I have, I have this fear of missing out that, that, uh, that I'm aware of and I see in some, in some of the people I work with. I, I can honestly say that FOMO is something that is becoming less a, a, a part of my life. Yeah, I, I, I have like fear of missing the couch is what I have. <laughs> <laughs> the things that I used to like, yeah, this will be fun. It's like, oh God, I got to go do that now. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It, it, it's, I've been ground to a nub. <laughs> fear of missing the couch. <laughs> so, so when we take a look, Let's let's so let's walk through our own, you know, for, for just a short time, our own yeah, personal yeah, yeah. experiences with 08 versus 20. So <laughs> where were you in 2008? What were you doing? I was uh, at Morgan Stanley and I was on the upside and I was reviewing uh, 1035 exchanges from Oof. annuity to annuity, uh, from from life contracts to annuities or long term care contracts. So uh, that was <clears throat> that was my role. And. I mean, I remember vividly being with my team gathered around one of my teammates' computers when things like really, really were, were looking dismal. And I, I honestly don't know that I had anything like the awareness that I have now about what, what that really meant. I, I think I was just amazed at the spectacle of it and fearful for what that actually meant. Um, I mean, I immediately went to, you know, what, How's our firm or our, our jobs okay? Sure. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Secure there. Um, what does this mean for all the employees' stock I've been buying up? You know, oh, is that yeah. worthless? Uh, but I think from a longer term perspective, I I just didn't have that mindset or the awareness or the knowledge to really understand it. I think the way that I can in hindsight now about how how huge of a deal that was. Uh, but but where where were you? So I was I was at Merrill. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was doing what I do now. Um, and I remember it was just, to your point, kind of like gathering around the screen, it was like stunning just the, the you know, I, I felt like saying like, eventually this market's going to put its hands up and not, you know, stop blocking punches with its face, you yeah. know, and it just, it just never, it just never did. It just kept going. And, and the chunks, the chunks of, of points that were dropping off and she'd never seen it before. No, you know, statistically, it just didn't happen. Um, and, you know, I, I remember vividly in October um, when the market started the day like up 600 points and finished. This is on the Dow, obviously. Started the day up like 600 points and then finished the day down 850. I remember thinking like, I, I just I don't even know what to say anymore. And yeah. um it was hard. I mean, I was, I was relatively new. I was, I was only in the business for about four and a half years at that point. Um, and you know, I was, I was, I was had my, my certified financial planning designation. Um, I had just actually gone through the SEMA education. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was trying to bring, uh, you know, quantifiable arguments to these emotional situations and people weren't having it, you know, and, and I was having people call me crying on the phone, telling them, I'm absolutely killing them. And I remember hanging up saying, yeah, you're right. I am like, but this is what I'm supposed to do. Like that we're supposed to stick to the plan. Uh, and, and I really had doubts that the stuff that I had spent so much time learning um, was right, mm -hmm. you know, and then that what I was doing was actually beneficial to people. 
Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and it, it just felt like it was like this, this, this car accident in slow motion where it just, it seemed like it took forever to get to the bottom. Um, and then, you know, it, it, it felt good kind of coming out of it. Um, and, and you realize that, you know, the advice you had given was, was, was prudent and the right thing to do. Um, but God, it was tough. That was a tough time. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. I, and, I, I still think back on that now and think, what what did that mean for the people that had retired around that month? Oh uh, God, yeah, I, I think about that too, right? Um, it, it, there was there was a couple of clients that I had had who retired in in January of '08. Wow, and and they just, I mean, it, it was I can't think of a worse time in history to retire. No. Uh, and they went back to work, you know, and, and, and they didn't necessarily need to financially, but psychologically, it was just oh, of course, they, they felt like. They just took such a hit um, that they had to, um, and and so yeah, that was a tough time for for people to. Um, it was a tough time for for people to to retire. Yeah, yeah, and then I mean, you'd hope. All right, we have we have two years of of something that's safer that we can pull from to let the portfolio recoup. But I mean, that's that's also tough for some people too, is to get to get that well, in place. And, and that that's just it. like even the, the safe stuff didn't feel safe because i mean there was there was rampant talk about banks being nationalized there was all yeah. kinds of consolidation in that space and to the point where the, the federal government had to step in and guarantee every cent in money market funds every cent yeah and if, if it had come to that i mean it wouldn't have mattered right we would have been you know wallpapering rooms with dollars right because it just what they would be worthless yeah um but it was, you just didn't, it was one of those scenarios where they just didn't feel like there was anywhere to go. You just like everything was, everything was, was, was uh, kind of cloaked in danger. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, um, but then we emerged, right? So, so we hit the bottom in, in March of 09 and, and, and the world didn't end. And, and um, you know, all these banks got to take all their crappy assets and stick it on the government's balance sheet and, you know, and so they emerged pristine, right? They, they came yeah. out, you know, quite healthy. And, and um, but people were very skeptical about it for, for a long time. I and mean, it, it took it, it. They're still not fully recovered. You know, banks really from a from a market cap standpoint are, are just now starting to get back to where they were uh, in 2007. Wow. You know, I didn't think know about that. that. Yeah. I mean, so there, there was. Just, there was so much financial engineering that had to take place, but banks, banks from a price standpoint are, are just, are just now getting back up there. Wow. And, and really it's just been since like, you know, 2018, you know, it took a good long time for them to even get going. So, yeah. yeah. So how uh, does an event like that in, in our world, I mean, obviously I feel like that has to be a part of some of the biases that you see, or at least, you know, skepticism about, about, well, and, and, and that's where we look at the baby boomers yeah. and the silent generation, um, loss aversion is the second one. And, and the, again, the only places that it shows up uh, and now, now they've, and, and the, the, the funny thing is that 2000, I'm sorry, not, uh, 2008 wasn't their first rodeo, right? Yeah. So these people who have been investing, they went through the dot-com bust, they went through 08, Yep. They went through the long, uh, uh, who was it, uh, long-term capital management in, in the collapse of, of currencies in, in uh, 97. They went through the savings and loan crisis of, of uh, 94, 
they went through the Black Monday in October of 87, right? So, so they've yeah. seen some stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, and that's where, you know, I, I think now they're like, you know, it's, I always, I'm a big reader of World War II. And one of the most fascinating stories to me is the sinking of the Indianapolis. Uh-huh. And these poor guys were in the water for, for days in shark infested waters. And, and there were guys that either got eaten by a shark or drowned swimming to the rescue boat after all of that. Right. So these loss aversions are like, well, I've made it through all of this. I can't die with, with financially with, with, you know, freedom right at the other end of the side uh, of the, of the uh, other end of the, the spectrum here. Um, and so I think that, that, that just plays into it. Like I've survived, I've, I've somehow cobbled it together and made it through all of this. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not going to, at this point, I can't take the hit anymore. Yeah. And they know the hits are out there. Absolutely. You know? By the way, have you read that uh, book? I think it's the history of uh, the U S through five market crashes. No. Yeah. It's great. It's really good. It's, it's um, that might be the name of it. It's something like that. Uh, and I can certainly get that together. We, maybe we can include that in the, yeah, that, that would be good. that would be an interesting one to talk about. Yeah, but it, it covers, uh, you know, it's it's more of a journalism type thing. It covers the, the people that were involved in setting the stage, and you know, some of the some of the financial in- instruments that were out there, and the circumstances in the country and in in the world. Um, yeah, especially with that that one in the eighties, uh, you know, with with the options contracts, the Black Black Monday. Oh yeah. Um, but there was there was so much beyond that that was happening in the world at that time that yep. all it all just came together in one moment and that was the result. So it it, it, it yeah, was that was I mean everyone calls it Black Monday, but it was a more protracted event than that. And, and you know yeah. things things looked bad on Friday afternoon. Yes, I think people woke <laughs> up on Monday morning saying things aren't going to go well today. You know, and, <laughs> yeah. and they were right. Yeah. So yeah, but interesting read. Um, yeah. So with with those, so the that's that's reflected in in those two generations, right? Loss aversion. Uh, yeah. And can we toggle forward a, a bit? So for for the millennial generation, th- their first rodeo, then just based on age, is going to as investors and, and is going to be what's happening with the pandemic, right? The first, I mean dip or or strange. Well, so it depends. So so. Um... So for the for the dot com bust, I was working for a technology company, and and I yeah. had a good chunk of compensation tied to incentive stock options and in um, the employee stock purchase plan, and and you know you're young, and I got no other responsibilities, and they're paying me more than they should be, so so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take part in all of these things. Um, and I was working for a company called American Power Conversion, and I was buying that stock, you know, robustly at forty eight dollars per share, and and one afternoon it went to nine dollars a share, you know, and so. That was my first taste of it. Um, and then, you know, then you saw it again in, um, I was 34, I guess I'm, I'm 47 now. So I was, yeah, I was 34 um, during the financial crisis. And again, immersed in it, right, professionally. So it was a little yeah. different, but my friends all kind of suffered. Yeah. A lot of people lost their jobs. So I would say that 08 was probably uh, the the first real one from at least some semblance uh but uh, uh 2020 was the first one maybe a lot of these people saw the sting of, of of their statement yeah you know where a lot of money was all of a sudden not there anymore yes so but i mean the amount of time it took from from 
08 to start to bottom till it actually did bottom that that was a much longer event not even the recovery just just the the start to the to, to the to the tumble to to the end of the tumble was vastly longer than the top to bottom to top in 2020 yeah yep so you know it's it's not a it's almost like yeah well you didn't really earn your stripes if you it doesn't count not yet yeah right <laughs> um I hope it's okay. I just wanted to, to touch upon uh, another article. And I feel like this is probably something for another discussion with us, Brendan, but um, we'd been reading through a couple behavioral studies uh, in advance of this recording and um, largely around the pandemic and, and just how advisors were dialoguing with their clients. And just now, now, as you said at the top, you know, we're, we're, beyond this in, in a way, and we're able to reflect back and get some data about, about people's experiences, both the, the advisors and the, the investors and the clients. Um, do you want to speak a little bit to that, just some of the, the, the takeaways that you've seen uh, from, from that data and from those studies, just about the, the relationship and behavioral finance and how that all came together recently? In, in terms of what clients are expecting yeah. from advisors yeah. at that point? Yeah. So, so I, I think that... Um, uh, when we when we take a look at um, where people saw the performance of, of their advisor being good versus bad, it all comes down to contact. So uh, when we talk about the the number of of contacts um, that that tended to make people feel that they were being uh, front of mind and they were being uh, considered by their financial advisor was four. Right. So over the year that the, that the year and a half that the pandemic was really kind of in place, uh, if, if they had reached out in some, it doesn't even have to be a phone call or a meeting. It's just, just some touch from the advisor. Uh, if, if that number was four, then people felt as though that their financial advisor was doing a good job for them. The percentage of people that thought that it was a good job fell sharply for each subsequent lack of touch. So it dropped dramatically to three uh, to the point where if you, if you had only one touch, you know, people are considering new advisors. Yeah. You know, and, and so I find that that's interesting. Um, I also found, so coming out of this, um, and this was also surprising to me, is the number of uh, people that find that having a, a certification or a designation in financial planning, 63% of, of clients felt, felt as though that a, a, a financial planning designation, not necessarily the CFP, uh, was, was very important, very valuable. 64% mm -hmm. said that same type of certification in investment management was, was valuable. So more people thought that it was more significant to have that investment. Now, again, what we don't see here is do, do people consider the CFP or the CPWA um, as an investment designation or not. Uh, but, you know, I would say that one of the things that we kind of concede these days in the business is that investments are kind of table stakes at this point. Like you just don't, they're, they're, everyone kind of does it, right? So that it's almost commoditized and really it's, it's, it's the, the uh, value beyond investments or the advice beyond investments that are, be, have become really important to clients. And so I was, I was interested to see that. Um, and then the other thing was the shift in the type of investments. So let me find, I want to find the statistics. I want to make sure I get it correct. So the, uh, when we look at how people shifted as a result of the crisis 
in 2008 and 2009. Now, this is an aggregate. What asset class do you think benefited the both cumulatively from those two crises? So, so the position before versus the position after. Oh, geez. I was happy to see this, but I was surprised to see it. Oh boy. Um, large caps, like large cap equity? No? Alternative investments. Oh, huh. Yeah, wow. so alternative investments um, became a benefactor where the, the, uh, uh, the amount of, of investments that were in prior to the crisis versus after the crisis. And that, you know, it's, 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 it's a logical thing to consider, right? Because it's, yeah. it's you know, in both crises, um, I think that the, the, uh, the damage was widespread and, and kind of made its way into all asset classes. And so uh, the logical approach would be, let's, let's get some, you know, non-correlating or diversifying assets and asset uh, alternative investments would be the, the, the perfect place for that to be. Um, and so that was that was one of the biggest benefits. Every everything else saw a deficit. Really? Okay. Except yeah. for cash. So cash was the other benefactor. Um, yeah. And and uh, but but in general, alternatives was the only non-cash asset class that benefited post crisis. Wow. So I found that to be to be good. So um, I, I wonder there is there is there space at least for people to consider. Uh, at least a portion of maybe more tactical approaches in, well, in I, design? Without question. And I think that that's one of the things that's, well, well it's, it's twofold. One is uh, similar to behavioral finance, um, alternative investments are just more, they're just more prevalent in, in conversations in, in the industry recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as um, uh, the, the, and that, that, is conflated with the fact that, that there's more of these types of investments that are available mm-hmm. to the average investor. Um, and, and so the study that we're, we're looking at with this specifically is, is considered affluent investors. Uh, and that was defined as anybody that has uh, at least $100,000 of investable assets all the way up to 25 million. Mm-hmm. So not the super high net worth, just what was considered affluent investors. Um, and so it, it shows that... Um, you know, people were, were nervous about the market. They were nervous about their income. They were nervous about all of these things in both crises. And it just, again, to take a look, to compare the two of them together, in, the, uh, in April of 2020, the amount of people that were nervous uh, about the economy was double so of, of this of this group was double that uh, uh, than than the people who were nervous about it in November of two thousand eight. Wow! So in November two thousand eight, we were in the like we were in the teeth of it. We we hadn't bottomed yet, but we were. It was this 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 uh, persistent cascading drop lower, uh, and and the, again we're talking about nationalizing the banks. We're talking about you know all of these things of of unemployment and and what's the future going to look like and what's your money going to be worth. Um, and, and yet the, the shutdown of the economy as a result of the coronavirus had twice the impact. And, and I think that that makes sense to me, but yeah. then the rest of it doesn't. Um, people were more worried about what their household assets were going to be in November of 08 than they were in April of 2020, which was interesting to me. Household income is about the same, um, but uh, you know, there, were, there were less people concerned about their income. Yeah in April of 2020 than there were people concerned about their income in November of 2008, which wow. is staggering to me. 
Uh, and then the overall outlook again was not good. So, so they were roughly the same. Uh, where they they both, uh, you know, both crises had, had people scared about the about what the world was going to look like for for their families uh, sure. post crisis. How, uh, do you think some of that um, that 08 statistic about household household assets could be attributed to the fact that for a lot of people, a lot of homes were underwater or you know greatly valued? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's, there's, uh, you know, that was part of the, that was part of the collapse was that, that people's home values, you know, you yeah. know, what was, well, and we're seeing a lot of that again, it's post crisis, right? So this data was captured in April of 2020. Yeah. Um, and it really took, you know, like towards the summer of 2020 is when, when home prices really started to take off. Uh, so yeah, it's a very valid point, I think for sure. Yeah. Um, that, that, that played into it. Um, but the, the so surprising. That, I, I'm, I'm surprised. Well, the, the fact that people were were less concerned about their income in April of 2020 versus November of 08 is that was the one that was surprising to me. Yeah, yeah, very surprising. Um, and then when we look also, there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about with uh, what. All right, so the favorable. So we talked about the favorable uh, impression uh, that the client had of their financial advisor based on the number of touches uh, or by communications. So four or more, 61% of people were, were satisfied with their advisor. If it was three, it dropped to 50%. If it was two, it dropped to 43%. If it was uh, one, it dropped to 25%. At zero, now if this this is kind of like arbitrage, right? Because at zero, you made no effort, and twelve percent of them still had a favorable opinion of you. <laughs> uh, you know that to me is interesting. Uh, but overall, thirty-seven percent of people. So this goes to show you where the weightings of the data actually landed. Only thirty-seven percent of people were satisfied with what their advisor, the amount of communications that their advisor had with them. So, wow. yep. So so interesting. Um, and then the different ways, it, it, it really, people didn't care how they did it. Uh, webinars were fine, phone calls were fine, uh, in-person meetings were fine, podcasts, like, so the different ways that they touched them uh, didn't necessarily have a, uh, uh, a difference. And there's not, you know, there's really not a big difference between um, the ways that we look at. I mean, certainly uh, video chats, are, are people are more open to video chats than they were say five years yeah. ago. Um, yeah. But, but uh, you know, it, it's, it's still, it's, it's not, it's not a significant difference. And then when we take a look at overall, who has performed well during the crisis. So if we're looking at independent financial advisors uh, or independent financial planners, full service brokers, who do you think performed the best? in the terms of their, uh, their clients? Wow, that's tough. Um, I'm going to go, I'll, I'll go Indies. You're correct. Yeah. yeah. So 49% uh, felt as though their independent advisor performed well, 40% said full service brokerage uh, mm -hmm. performed well, and 37, again, 36% overall uh, felt as though that their advisor performed well during the crisis. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the, what was also interesting uh, is, and again, the data could be a little bit biased because it's probably people who are working with people, but in the future, will I use more financial advisors than I do now? 14% uh, on average said yes, 
16% of people who are working with financial advisors and full, uh, full brokerage firms said, said yes, so 16%. Yep. Uh, and 10% for independent financial planners said they would work with more advisors in the future. So, uh, you know, all in all, the, I, I was surprised at, um, in looking at the ways that people looked at the coronavirus versus the uh, financial crisis, I would have assumed that, and again, it's, it's probably recency bias, but I would have assumed that people would have had a more significant reaction to the virus than they would have during the crisis of 08. Yeah. Because it, it was, it had never been done before. Like they'd have, the world had never been shut down like that, you know, yeah. at least in modern history that I remember, even during world wars, it was open. Yeah. Gen X versus millennials. So one of the things that we've talked about before is, is how skeptical millennials will likely be about home purchases and the investment world as a result of, again, them being in their very formative years where their security was threatened, right? Their, their ability to stay in the same home, their ability to watch their parents not suffer through things. Um, they were in very formative years during the financial crisis. If we take a look at uh, the difference in March and May, so if we look at uh, the percentage of uh, millennials, I'm sorry, this is Gen X. So the percentage of Gen X that bought stocks in March of 2020, so in the midst of it, 15, uh, somewhere between 15 and 20%, like 17% uh, bought stocks, ETFs, or calls. In May of 2020, where we kind of threw it, right, things were feeling better, that number dropped. So, so they, they did their buying when the pain was on, and started to slow their wow. buying off as we started to emerge, right? Which is what you would expect. That's what you yeah. hope people would do. Yeah. Um, moving some assets into cash was about the same. So 15% moved assets into cash in March during the, the, the midst of the crisis. Uh, and then May, when we were starting to emerge, uh, that number was, again, still about 15%. We're still moving money into cash. Um, and then uh, a good chunk of them, uh, about 10% in each, uh, refinanced their mortgage at least once. So, so both in March and in, in May. Yeah. So if we take a look at the same data for millennials, considering all of the biases that we talked about before, yep. right? The hurting, the framing, the recency bias, all of that. Availability, yep. Percentage of millennials that were buying stocks in March of 2020, about 12%. Percentage of millennials that bought stocks in May of 2020, 37%. Wow. Right? So they had three times more were buying stocks when things started to improve and feel better. Right. So if we take a look at that compared to the Gen Xers, the Gen Xers were, were pretty stable in both months and, 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 yeah. um, and actually started buying less, you know, marginally just, but, but, but still less uh, when things were going well versus when things seemed like, you know, all hell was breaking loose and the millennials were significantly different. They, so they bought, Wow. You know, about 12% were buying, which is slightly less than the Gen Xers. But then uh, when things were going poorly, and then when things started to improve, that number tripled and, and it you know more than tripled the Gen Xers. The amount of people that moved some assets into cash. Now, again, younger, right? So millennials are younger than us. About 22% were moving assets into cash in March of 2020. Um, and about 34% were moving assets into cash in May of 2020. So what, when you look at those two things together, it, it means that about 70 some odd percent 
of millennials were, were doing something. Right. So they were either going more conservative or more aggressive, but they, you know, it wasn't like a wait and see approach. It was, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to react. Yes. Right? Um, and then when we take a look at the same data for refinance, their mortgage, this was actually surprising to me. Uh, 20% were refinancing their mortgage in March of 2020, and about 22% were refinancing in May of 2020. So that's also significantly higher um, than, than Gen Xers. So, you know, it, it's, it's, when you when you look at the data, it is funny how the perceived so the perceived biases that we saw again. I'll remind people that for millennials, the top five were framing, hurting, confirmation bias, self control, and availability bias. Right, and so as a result of that, you would think that when things are going well, they're going to do stuff, and that's exactly how it worked. Uh, and so I found that to be. You know, I would, and I would actually expected more in, in Gen Xers to, to, and I would expected it to have been about the same where yeah. more we're buying when things, just by nature, that's what we do. Um, that and we the are, regret aversion too, right? Just, yeah, I don't miss that, out. That, that, that's the, yeah, well, so you wonder, yeah. Or were they still suffering from the regret aversion of why well, had, obviously I should have taken money off the table before yeah. I should have seen this pandemic coming, you know? And, and so, um, you know, people definitely got caught over their skis with some risk, but but they uh, uh, so so potentially the regret bias works both ways. Yeah. So, but this stuff, whether you, you believe it or not, uh, it it definitely shows that you know it it helps you predict certain reactions. Uh, and then the last thing I'll talk about in terms of data is if we take a look, I'm gonna find the right spot. So this, this index that was doing the uh, study of people who had at least $100,000, but less than 25 million in investable assets, it took, it took a look at something called the Millionaire Investor Confidence Index, uh, and then also the Affluent Investor Confidence Index. So this is not generational by, by, by nature, it's just, it's, it's all investors with that amount of money. In November of 08, now this is this is where again we weren't quite at the bottom, and it, it we were in the midst of pain though. The, uh, this index was was measuring both of them, so the affluent and the uh, uh, and the millionaire were both registering negative thirty nine, so significant amount of pain. The lowest it got for either of them during the pandemic was negative twelve. So by that, people were, were three times as affected or nervous about what they were seeing during the crisis in 08 than they were in the crisis of, of the coronavirus, which, I, again, I find shocking. Yeah. Because uh, even though having been through 08, and maybe it's because, hey, listen, I've been, this is not my first rodeo, right? So, um, you know, I, I think that, that uh, maybe people just knew that they came through one before, so, so they'll be fine moving forward. Um, but it was just so unprecedented. I'm just surprised that it didn't have a, a at least closer, you know, sure. to, to be a, a less than a third of, of what the pain was in, in 08 was surprising to me. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and when you look at the data in terms of how long people thought it was going to take to recover from, from bottom back up to where we were, it was about the same, you know, across all, all timeframes. It was, it was, the, you know, almost a blueprint of one another. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, one of the, the big points here, just higher level practice approach and getting behavioral in there is just that simple communication piece that you had mentioned. 
Yeah, well, it's the communication piece for sure. And, and it's also, um, you know, being aware of what the biases are in, in, in what, how they manifest themselves, you know, because at the end of the day, your job is, is to make sure that your clients don't have uh, or don't allow an emotional response in what they're seeing to, to cause outcomes in their portfolio, right? So if it requires from a planning perspective that we need to change things, then do it, right? But if it's just because you're seeing something good or bad in the market and you react to that agnostic of your plan, you know, you have to, you have to keep them from doing that. You got to protect them from themselves. Um, and, and, you know, you need to know, like when you're having these conversations, who's at the helm? Is it, is it objectivity or is it emotion? And if it's objectivity, well, then it's a different conversation. If it's emotion, you, you've got to really try to diffuse that and come back to, and that's why the finance, and we've said this, I'm, I'm sure a hundred times in these podcasts is it come back to a plan. Like if you, if you have a plan that you're monitoring on a regular basis, that everyone's agreed to, it can, it can be really the barometer that gets you through these types of storms. Sure. Yeah. It just, just take the attention away from what's happening out there. Put it on this thing you've been working on for years. Hey, this is, this is, these are your goals. This is what we, we, we know about how these often will go. Can't predict it, but here's the plan. Absolutely. Um, and, and so from your perspective, what, yeah. what differences do you think you felt between 08 and 20? And obviously your life was dead above us. Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, it's you know, so different. Um, it's, it, it's such a, a different experience. Um, I think that at the time in 08, looking back on it, I really had no idea how all that was going to go and how it was going to turn out. And I think some of that was just sheer, sheer ignorance. I just didn't, I, I just wasn't aware enough and, and uh, fundamentally knowledgeable about what all the, the, the pieces that were at, at play and how that could play out. I think, I think with this, this most recent uh, shift, I mean, obviously uncharted territory. Yeah. Um, but I think having gone through that, there, there was, uh, I don't think unfounded confidence, but I knew at my core that, all right, well, in moments like this, these are some best practices. And, and I, now I know that. And I know that on, there's something on the other side of this, that whether it takes three months, a year, year and a half, that, that things will be, will be back. And I think, you know, remind myself of where, where's my point? <laughs> where do yeah. I need to like raise my hand and say, this is too painful. Um, and I, I know best, best practice for success of my plan, my family is to stay put because that has been designed for this. And, and there are, there, you know, long-term, I have goals that, you know, in, in to my seventies that I'm, I'm trying to aim towards. Uh, so I think it, it felt, I mean, scary in different ways, obviously. I think that there's that whole layer of, of health stuff. Yeah. That, that that's definitely a different, yes. really jarring. And yep. I think you saw that in some of the reports that we had read that one of the things that were top of mind were medical expenses, health and well-being yep. of the family. Um, but I, it scary because I didn't know where, where things were turning next and, or, or, or the length of time that we would be in it, but confidence in that there was going to be a way that like you and I have said, this, this wasn't our first time through. And I think a lot of that came from not only the experience, but also uh, the education and, and that I've, I've built up since then just about. Right. Without question. Yeah. So 
Uh, it was really reassuring though, to see some of those stats about, about some things that I know the good planners out there do with uh, communicating, you know, just being reassuring and, and how the clients they reported reacted to that, where the people that weren't doing that, the good, good planners were getting more referrals during this time. Well, and I, yeah, I've said that before that my bill, my business specifically grew pretty tremendously uh, yeah. during the 08 crisis because we were just, I, I mean, we weren't hiding. And, and so it was all came from referrals. And there's a lot of, I think a lot of advisors that kind of tuck away um, waiting for the storm to pass before they come back out to talk to people. And that's, that's, you know, you gotta, you gotta be out in front of it. You gotta talk to people. Yeah. Let them know that, you know, listen, we, we, we made this, we made this financial plan during unemotional times when, you know, things were kind of more calm. And, and, and so we were objective. And, and so yeah. we should stick to, unless we were fundamentally wrong about something, we need to just kind of stick to that plan. And if there's a change that we need to make, we'll identify it and make it, but we're not going to do it because of what we're seeing. You know, we got to do it for real reasons. Yeah. That's a great point. Maybe we could talk to the team here at BIF and uh, link to some of those articles because in, yeah. in my opinion, I, I was, you'd sent those to me and um, I, I thought they were just fantastic. It was, it was reassuring to see some of the trends of surprising in other cases. And, you know, it, it always, I always wondered, well, how does this stuff really apply? Are we, are we getting into this space where it's that nebulous therapeutic type thing? And I think one of, one of the great things these, these uh, studies did was it answered, no, they're not. There are things that we can do that are very much within our power to be aware of these biases and to act on them in a way that's, that's adequate given our expertise. You know, we, we can manage some of the behaviors and here's how to do it. And I think that's clear in the studies too, so. And just, just yeah, I think, I think it's important to, to equip yourself with that emotional intelligence. Um, again, as, as I said, it, every time we talk about this is, is you're, you're just like one arm link away from, from the biases that you have in and of yourself impacting the advice you're giving to clients. Um, and, and so having that emotional intelligence to understand the emotions that you're having and what's stirring them and, and whether or not there's something you should, you should act on um, is, is important to the quality of the advice that you're giving to the people that are, you know, looking to you for it. Absolutely. Well, I think this is a good place for us to break for now. Uh, I find these, these episodes are, are a lot of fun to record and prepare for. Yeah. And uh, if the listeners out there are enjoying it as well, please let us know. Uh, we'll continue to come up with, with inter interesting topics to talk about that are you know, just of interest to people that are professionals, but also things that can help you really out in your practice. But, but, but just uh, like the eighth grade dance, we take requests. We, we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, with that, uh, Brendan, thank you for your time and knowledge on this. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and we will check in next time. All right. Thanks, Adam. Take care. Take care. Bye.